Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. I'm Milena Rice. I recently finished my PhD at Yale University, where I studied planetary dynamics. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a pre-doctoral fellow at the Center for Computational Astrophysics, where I study transients and their host galaxies. You're listening to Episode 52, Stellar Streams. Oh, wow. I did not write a clever title for this. (laughs) (laughs) It's informative, though. (laughs) (laughs) You know exactly what it's about. Can we think of a better title on the spot? Something with an S. I don't know. Streaming the Stars. You're listening to episode 52, Streaming the Stars, because we're the stars and it's streaming right into your ears. Does that sound cocky? (laughs) Now I hate it. Streaming the stars. Melina, it seems like you have thoughts. Just like, call it like snazzy stellar streams or something. Like just add a word. (laughs) I don't know. You're listening to episode 52, (laughs) Snazzy Stellar Streams. You had an H in there? Schnazzy? I've never heard that. Yeah. That's how you pronounce it. Schnazzy. No, that's good. Schnazzy stellar streams. (laughs) Spectacular stellar streams. Suitable stellar streams. (laughs) A symphony of stellar streams. Sensational stellar streams. You're listening to episode 52 sensational stellar streams Ooh, good one guys we finally got there <laughs> nailed that title <laughs> Ooh, thanks melina <laughs> uh-huh <laughs> until i was preparing for today's episode i actually had never heard about stellar streams and that is one thing i love so much about this podcast that i get to learn all about this from you from the experts from astrobytes and then get to talk about it In lieu of us doing intro questions today, we have a featured interview with PhD student Sophia Lilengen, who specializes in simulations of stellar streams and dark matter. Alex led our interview this week with Sophia, which covers background on stellar streams, specifically her research, and then her intercontinental career path. Let's take a listen. Hello, Sophia. Thank you very much for being on the show today. Could you start off by introducing yourself with your name, your affiliation, and your preferred pronouns? Hi, Alex. Thank you very much for inviting me. So I'm Sophia Lelangen. My preferred pronouns are she, her, and I am a PhD candidate at the University of Surrey in the UK. And currently I am in New York uh, as a pre-doc at the Flatiron um, Center for Computational Astrophysics. And Sophia, you work on stellar streams, as far as I know, (laughs) hoping to hear more about that today. What is a stellar stream and how do they form? Okay, so stellar streams are disrupted globular clusters and dwarf galaxies that fell into a galaxy like our Milky Way. And so when a galaxy falls in, they fall into the gravitational field of a bigger galaxy. And that gravitational field takes the stars out of the smaller galaxy or globular cluster 
and disrupts the globular cluster. So, so stars are leaving the gravitational field of their progenitor and instead uh, move in the gravitational field of the galaxy, of the new host galaxy. Does the stellar stream always contain the material from the galaxy that fell in, or can it contain some mixture from the original galaxy as well? So it is only stars from the infalling galaxy or globular clusters. And so these stars leave the progenitor, um, and the progenitor moves on an orbit, and these stars have slightly different energies than the orbit when they leave. So what happens then is they build a nice arc along the sky. Some like go ahead of the progenitor, some fall behind. And then the longer the progenitor disrupts and the more massive the progenitor is, the longer the stream gets and also the wider the stream gets. Is that because of tidal forces? Yes, exactly. That's due to the tidal forces of the Milky Way in our case. Got it. Are these short-term features? Is the ultimate fate of a stellar stream for all of the stars to finally become merged with the apparent galaxy? Or could these last long periods of time? So they can last long periods of time. It depends on where they are in the stellar halo. So the further inwards of the stellar halo there is, the quicker they get disrupted and just merge all over the radius, the distance. But the further out they are, the more long-living they are. So that's why we see more stellar streams a bit further out in the halo. Are there a lot of other galaxies besides the Milky Way where we can study stellar streams? Or is it mostly Milky Way focused? So this happens in every galaxy that Mm -hmm. undergoes merge events. But the further a galaxy is away, the less we can see like um, stars in the halo. So, for example, for Andromeda, there are quite a few streams in Andromeda that we can see, and there are expected to be actually more streams than around the Milky Way. And there are a few other external galaxies where you can see like one big stream. So there's a nice effort going on to find them around external galaxies as well. How many have we detected so far? Good question. Um, (laughs) So I try to find a number, but there's new papers every other month or so. Basically, since Gaia, the amount exploded of what we uh, could find with stellar streams. So we have several tens of stellar streams, at least, I think, going towards 100 now. And like most of them are just like very small structures, um, either found within Gaia or within like sky surveys. Uh, like the Dark Energy Survey. And yes, like with the new Gaia data release, we'll get better data. Right. So with Gaia, what we were able to learn is that just if all of the stars are moving together in one direction, and that's what tells you they're part of the same stream, or what did Gaia contribute to the study of stellar streams? Gaia contributed a coverage of the sky so that um, mm-hmm. stars are repeatedly visited. So what we got with Gaia was parallaxes and proper motions for over a billion stars. Mm-hmm. What you can look for is just like long coherent structures basically on the sky. And there's like there's some really good algorithms now exploring the Gaia data to find new streams. But yeah, Gaia gave us actually 5D, sometimes 6D data. So we have the position on the sky, we have the distance, we have the proper motions. 
sometimes radial velocities with Gaia, but they're not as great. So um, there's a lot of spectroscopic follow-up of suspected streams and stream members. Sophia, you mentioned Andromeda having multiple stellar streams. Do we know if each stream resulted from a single merger event, or can we disentangle multiple merger events from multiple stellar streams? I'm not completely sure about Andromeda, but for the Milky Way, we know that several stellar streams came in with um, one merger event. So that's the field of galactic archaeology, where people look at satellite galaxies, globular clusters, and stellar streams, and try to identify which of them came in as a group. And actually, there was a paper, I think last week, that made a really great job on identifying over 200 of these uh, objects in the halo and identified which one came in as which group. So Very cool. Yeah, galactic archaeology uh, stellar streams are really cool. Okay, that's probably more than enough introduction into stellar streams. What do you do with stellar streams? Good. The other side, when you don't do galactic archaeology with stellar <laughs> streams, is near-field cosmology. So you can try to learn more about dark matter using stellar streams. So stellar streams, they are not just one coherent structure. They have a lot of substructure in the stream. It is quite hard to disentangle where that substructure comes from, whether it is a baryonic interaction or whether it is actually a dark matter subhalo. When you say substructures, what does that look like? Are these like clumps within the stellar stream? So it could be a clump um, that would like be visible in the density of the stellar stream. It could also be an extra little um, stream like above or below. It could be that there's a break in the stream and then there's like something that is seemingly a different stream which could be in the track a little bit above or below the actual stream. So you see it either on the track or in the density. Got it. So how can we learn about dark matter from the stellar streams? So if it turns out that like these substructures are actually from subhalos that can um, tell us more about the nature of dark matter. Cold dark matter, we expect quite a few of those subhalos, while in warm dark matter we don't. So if we find subhalo interaction with the stream, that will tell us a bit more about the nature of dark matter. And then what I do, so that was a side, <laughs> side note. So what I do is actually look at the bigger dark matter halos. So the dark matter halo that the Milky Way is residing in. So that has like a mass of around 10 to the 12 solar masses. And the way the stream looks like and moves, it highly depends on the galactic potential. So you can try to model the stream and you put in parameters like the mass of the halo, the shape of the halo and other things. And you have to get this right to actually model the stream properly. So this is how we can learn about the mass of the Milky Way, for example. And then the next part of my project is the LMC, which is amazing. So the LMC is um, a galaxy currently falling into the Milky Way. So in a few billion years, I think it will also have a big stream, but currently it's still like a full galaxy that you can actually see in the southern night sky. LMC stands for? Large Magellanic Cloud. Together with the small Magellanic Cloud, you can see in the southern night sky as like a cloud on the sky. This galaxy is more massive than previously thought. 
and it actually disturbs the Milky Way halo. So what is usually assumed is that the halo is just like a spherical distribution of mass, the dark matter halo. But with the infall of the LMC, it's not spherical anymore um, and it's disturbed. I am trying to figure out whether streams are sensitive to the deformation. So this is a merger event that has not happened yet. So I'm assuming you're working with simulations? Exactly. So I have an um, N-body simulation of the LMC falling into the Milky Way. And then I can rerun the simulation with a stream model thrown in there. And then um, I can basically turn on and off different modes of the deformation and compare them, like compare what it does to the stream. So I can have a stream evolving in just the spherical gravitational potentials of the halos. And then I can turn on higher spherical moments. So this is like spherical harmonics. I can turn on a dipole for the Milky Way. I can turn on a quadrupole for the LMC. These are the main deformations. And then I can see how, how much is the stream affected by this. What kind of observations do you use to help inform your models? The stream I'm looking at is the orphan stream. And it is a long stream that spans over like the whole sky. And for that stream, we have really good data. So we have Gaia positions, proper motions, distances, and then we have radial velocities from follow-up surveys. Okay. But my project is mostly modeling. So these are just like a guide to have a model stream that looks very similar to the observed stream. Mm -hmm. So Sophia, you simulate different types of deformation you look at the resulting stellar stream and then you want to compare those different stellar streams across models. How do you make that comparison? What exactly are you quantifying within the stellar stream? So I compare it in two different ways. So what we found is that the biggest effect of these deformations are on the stream track. So what you can do is you take the stream as it's observed in RN deck and then you rotate it so that it's almost like a circle or a line in its own coordinate system. That That is the stream track. The way I make streams in my models is I take the progenitor, which for the orphan stream is a dwarf galaxy. Um, I have a position and a velocity just set from a grid search um, for this progenitor. So I rewind it in time for a few billion years and then I let it evolve as a stream. So particle, it will go forward again with particles leaving the stream. And then we can have a look at the stream, how it looks today and look at the stream track. And the stream track is really affected by those changes in the potential in a sense that it is mostly a different orbit that it will move on. So it will look differently. So when I turn on the dipole of the Milky Way, suddenly the potential looks different and the progenitor and the stream will move on a different orbit compared to just a spherical distribution. So this is one way. And how I compare it to each other is I'm looking at those different tracks and then I look at the data errors and I say, are those track difference bigger than the error on the data that we have? So would this be visible within our data limit? And yes, it is, um, especially for the Milky Way dipole, there's a huge difference between those tracks. So you need to get it right to get the stream right. 
And then the other way is, um, which is more within the simulations, is that I look at the forces that the stream particle experience over time. And the deformations have aspherical forces, so that are not from a spherical distribution. That's what I experienced from the Milky Way and the LMC. And then I can see the amount um, of aspherical forces when I turn on the different modes of deformation and how the stream is affected by this. And we see again the picture that the Milky Way dipole has the biggest effect. You alluded to matching your simulations to observations and trying to figure out whether a particular dark matter simulation would be observable in the stellar stream. Are there upcoming instruments or surveys that are going to help us figure that out? There are upcoming surveys that will be great for stream research. So first of all, Gaia will have two more data releases as far as I know, with more precise data um, where you can really narrow down your errors on the data. And then we also have two telescopes coming online in the next 10 years or so that are the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope and the Vera Rubin Observatory. And they will both be great for stream research. So the Roman telescopes will give us really deeper photometry. Um, it will allow us to distinguish between like foreground stars um, that are in the galaxy and actual halo stars. Mm -hmm. So we can actually get the densities of streams. So this will be really good to find substructures and interactions with those dark matter subhalos. And then with Rubin, this will give us a better pictures on the stars um, on the turn off of the main sequence. And you can really improve um, your metallicity estimates of those stellar streams. And that will first like remove, for example, disk stars because they have a different metallicity. So for some streams, that's going to be really interesting to find. Both together will give us really, really good data, both on streams in the Milky Way, but also a lot more streams in external galaxies. Got it. And the metallicity component to help really pin down the stars that belonged originally to a different galaxy that are now kind of blended into this parent galaxy. Exactly. So some of the stellar streams we see today are extremely metal poor, um, they have metallicities of the newest one was of minus 3.57. So just, yeah, understanding which stellar streams have what metallicity will help uh, inform galactic archaeology a lot as well. So, Sophia, all of the work that you've described, is this the project that you're completing at the CCA or was this more your thesis work? So this has been my thesis work and at the CCA I'm actually looking at the Milky Way dipole that we identified um, has the biggest effect on stellar streams and I try to understand from an information theory point of view how much information do streams hold about this time-dependent Milky Way dipole. So my project tries to understand if you have data, how much information do they hold about the parameter of a model, such as the Milky Way mass? And for the dipole, it would be like time-dependent terms on how the dipole evolves. Is knowing the dipole of the Milky Way really important? Yes, we use traces in the Milky Way a lot to understand the mass of the halo and the shape of the I halo. Mm. and. These measurements might be biased if we don't include the dipole. 
How long does it take you to run one of these simulations? Are you doing it on your laptop or do you use a large supercomputer? So the simulations of the Milky Way and the NMC are done by my collaborator. And I think they take a day to run. Hmm. And then my stream model within these simulations takes 10 to 20 minutes on my laptop. Enough time to get a snack. (laughs) (laughs) You did your bachelor's and master's at the University of Heidelberg, right? Yes, I did. What convinced you to leave Heidelberg for your PhD? So what I really like about astronomy is the possibility to um, work all over the world. So I did not want to be in Heidelberg forever. I got a bit bored of the town. And um, I've like always dreamed of moving around and meeting uh, different people working at different institutes. So that's why I, during my time in Heidelberg, first had an internship in Madrid at um, ESA. And then after Heidelberg, I went to Australia for a bit and then moved to the UK for my PhD and to New York for here. What is it like to do astronomy in the US after working for so long in Germany and the UK? I know the cultures are completely different. Yes, so the cultures are different. But what is really nice for me in light of the pandemic and COVID is that we're actually back in the office and we can talk to other people. We have a lot of interaction um, and the CCA is great. It has so many interesting people coming in, um, so many people that do interesting work that you might want to collaborate with, work with. So that is great. As a difference, I think maybe depending where you are in the UK, it might be a bit less pressure, a bit more relaxed. Even though our PhDs there are shorter in time, we are not completely pressured into like publishing a crazy amount of papers and we have a good work-life balance there. In the US, it's like a master and a PhD combined in graduate school. Yeah, right. With a lot of pressure from what I've heard on those candidacy exams, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we don't have it that bad. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in what ways would you say that your experience at the CCA is similar to and different from you doing research at the university? The CCA reminds me a lot of um, places like um, ESO, the European Southern Observatory, um, where I did my master. So it is a lot of researchers on different levels, um, many high up people that do a lot of uh, non-research things, um, but also postdocs and students. Um, while at the university, you have supervisors and everyone who's teaching. And I feel like that's a lot of extra time they spend on not doing research. Um, you also have a lot more students, which is great to see there. But within the groups, I think it's rather similar, the way you conduct research, the way you have set up your meetings, um, like group meetings, etc. I don't think there's a big difference between university and the CCA in the end. Sure. I want to pivot for a second and ask, when did you first get involved in astronomy research? So my first research in astronomy was in my bachelor's. So back then I even did something rather similar. I used traces to understand the gravitational potential. So in that sense, uh, 
that story has gone from my bachelor's, my master's, my time in Australia as well, to my PhD and my project wow. here. That's like the common <laughs> theme throughout all these. So yeah, that was 2015. That was also the first time I coded um, my first programming experience. And I had a great mentor who like told me like how to do it, um, sat down, took the time to explain me how to use NumPy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> That was my first experience. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, programming is something that there's definitely a learning curve to it, and it can be very difficult when you're just starting out. Yes, for sure. I also saw that you were an organizer of, it was called Research Culture Week at the University of Surrey. Could you explain what that is? So it's about like, yeah, the research culture within the universities, about careers, about health, um, about public engagement. So each day we had different speakers, two speakers a day to um, talk to the students, the PhD students, the um, early career researchers and faculty um, about these topics that I think are quite important to be included in academia. It sounds like a really valuable way to build up a peer network. Yes, uh, but actually the other thing that I organized, which was the doctoral college conference, that was a way better way to get to know other PhD students from the universities on other fields. And that was super interesting to do as well. Is that between universities or specifically at the University of Surrey? So that was at the University of Surrey, a conference from PhD students for PhD students to present their work with some keynote speakers just so that we can all inform each other what we're working on, what research is done at the university, but also trying to network, even though it was just at the beginning of the pandemic. So we had to move everything online and try to think sure. of ways mm. to do that. But that was a great uh, way to build up a network with people outside of Astro. Definitely. This is a treacherous question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you know what you want to do after your PhD? Right now, I think I want to do a postdoc or get a fellowship. So I've been like on and off about thinking what to do. But right now, I really enjoy doing research. And I think that my project can go a long way. So I hope to get a postdoc position or a fellowship either in the UK or um, here in the US, probably on the East Coast. Nice. Well, fingers crossed. I wish you luck. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well then, Sophia, if you could give one piece of advice to an undergrad listening to this show and interested in conducting research like yours, what would it be? I have to split it into ways. Always try to network every opportunity you get. That's how I got the different positions in the different countries. But then also, when you get to the point that you have a potential supervisor and a potential department, Make sure that these are nice people. So talk to current students, talk to former students. Make sure that it's a nice atmosphere because that's the most important thing. Um, more important than what you're working on. Um, just that you have people who support you, who are nice to you, who have great ideas. And that will make the PhD less hard and actually might give you a good time. That's great. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us this week. We had a great time chatting with you. And now it's time for us to stream the pure sound of space right into your ears with this episode's Space Sound.
the sound of space. There's just going to be a minute of silence. <laughs> a vacuum. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Get ready for sound like you've never heard it before. As soon as I find it on my computer. You don't have a space sound, do you, Will? <laughs> There's a chance I deleted it by accident. Oh, no, no, no. I definitely have it. Okay. Here it is. This one's short, so I'm going to play it twice. And again. And once more for good measure. (laughs) All right. What do you think? It sounded like there was some noise, but there was definitely some periodicity in there. So I want to say like variable stars. I was, yeah, I was definitely going to say variable stars. I think that we're getting better at this, but non-linearly. So it seems like every couple yeah. of times there are obvious ones, but then some really stump you. So there's definitely variability in this one, but it's not, it's not an image. Yeah, and there are a lot of periodic things, like it could be orbits or something, but I don't know. Totally. Variable stars came to mind immediately. I don't think it's in situ measurements. Yeah. Mm, okay. It's definitely not in situ, but this is the sound of a Tesla backing up. Oh. Periodically? No, I'm completely messing with you. <laughs> Periodically backing up. <laughs> Astronomical. <laughs> So this is a sonification of stellar pulsations for stars in the Milky Way halo. So you guys were pretty close on this one. Mm. I don't know that I'd call them variable stars because this is internal oscillations. Sure, they're reflected on the surface, but variable stars, I think, are a different category than, or perhaps I'm wrong? I think it might depend on the star. Okay. Yeah. I think there could be ways in which you could not categorize them as variable stars, but they are varying internally and then that gets reflected in the properties that you observe in the same way that variable stars are varying right well regardless this is the result of recent work in asteroseismology to understand stars in the halo of the milky way that came from gaia enceladus which was a small galaxy that merged with the milky way sometime around 10 billion years ago Mm. so these are stars within the sausage right the gaia enceladus sausage we talked about that a while ago, right? Mm-hmm. I think it was a long time ago, but yeah. We did, exactly. And they found by studying the oscillations that these stars are a hair younger than the primordial Milky Way stars. So they're much, much older than the sun, but they're about the same age, a little bit younger than the ones that form at the same time the Milky Way form. And they were at some point part of a stellar stream, though at this oh. point I think the stream has definitely broken up but at the time Hmm. when Gaia Enceladus merged into the Milky Way it probably would have created a stellar stream so I went thematic you did go thematic (laughs) yay (laughs) love themes (laughs) all right and now we will move on to hear Milena tell us about a particular stellar stream that has been the focus of a recent study yes so I will be talking about one specific very interesting stream So this astrobite is called Row, Row, Row Your Telescope Gently Down the Orphan Stream. (laughs) They really went for it, didn't they? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the rows also have two R's because we're talking about RR Lyrae stars. So I couldn't really enunciate that well. 
wasn't really sure how to do it. <laughs> you have to roll your tongue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this astrobite is about a paper by Koposov et al. from 2019. And it's focusing on actually one of the first ever discovered stellar streams called the Orphan Stream in the halo of the Milky Way. So mm -hmm. since Sophia already gave a fantastic intro to stellar streams, you already got to hear something that may have resulted from a stellar stream as well. I'll skip the background info and get straight into the details of this project. Wait, before you do, I have a question. Yeah. What is an orphan stream? Oh, it's just the name of this one stream. There aren't, it's not a class of streams. Oh, why did they name it orphan stream? I think it's because it was one of the first ones, so they probably thought it was lonely. But it's actually not. <laughs> Interesting. I don't know. Okay. Unclear. <laughs> but it is just one stream. Left as an exercise to the reader. <laughs> <laughs> and so the goal of this paper was to try to understand what exactly the origins of the orphan stream are. So what object was tidally disrupted to produce the stellar stream? So we have a couple of different clues. We know a little bit about this stream. It passes very close to the galactic center. So that has made studies of the stream actually a little bit trickier in the past, since this is a pretty noisy part of the sky. There are a lot of stars, mm -hmm. and you're trying to distinguish which ones are part of the stream and which ones are not. So the Gaia data set that Sophia talked about earlier has actually made this much more doable in the recent past. And so that's what made the study possible. The Gaia data set provided these precise astrometric constraints on each of the observed stars that it looked at. So we have very precise positions and velocities for each star of interest. And what you can do with that then is figure out which stars are consistent with moving together as part of the stream and which ones are maybe not likely part of the stream. These authors specifically were looking at RR Lyrae, pulsating stars, hence the double R rowing your boat. <laughs> <laughs> Can you remind us what those kinds of stars are? RR Lyrae stars are periodic variable stars that are on the horizontal branch of stellar evolution. So they're from spectral classes A or F. They actually have a very well-known relationship between their brightness and the period of their pulsations. And so this allows us to use them as a calibrator for distances, and they're part of the cosmic distance ladder. Ah, uh, okay. Sophia also mentioned that you could potentially identify stars within a stellar stream by their metallicity. Is there some connection between the different properties of our Lyrae stars and their metallicity that allows you to back that out from the data set they have? I think these authors were specifically focusing on actually just the periodicity is to actually figure out which stars are part of the stream and to map it out. But they mentioned that it would actually be a really great next step to look at the compositions of these stars as well. But that was not something okay. that was actually pursued in this specific paper. Cool. It must be really hard to get compositions because Gaia doesn't take spectra of everything, right? No. So I think you would need follow-up surveys or you can use other survey data that has already been taken and combine that with the Gaia data set. Sure, sure. Yeah. I see. So like, I think Apogee is looking at a lot of the sky, so maybe that would be used for this type of study. So these authors are using RR Lyrae stars as like tracer particles almost to map out the orphan stream? Yeah, so the authors wanted to map it out and figure out what stars are actually part of it and then try to figure out from that, are there any potential progenitor candidates that are actually consistent with having produced this stream? So they actually discovered a previously unknown southern component of the stream. So I mentioned that this is a pretty well-studied stellar stream, but 
the the part that was in the southern hemisphere was not known in the past and so the authors first noted that and they actually saw that some of the stars in the southern region are moving across the stream rather than along the stream so we typically expect in an undisturbed stellar stream all the stars would just move in the same direction along that stream sort of you know based mm -hmm. on the direction that the stars were stripped from their initial globular cluster or dwarf galaxy uh, so since some of the stars are swimming from shore to shore instead of just you know <laughs> passing down the stream with their companions sure. <laughs> uh, that means there had to have been another interaction with some other massive body that led to a disruption so that's something sort of interesting that just hadn't been noted before uh, there's probably yeah. been a recent interaction in at least the southern part of the stream so is this to say that there was a merger early on a stellar stream formed from that merger and then some interaction warped the stream from the previous merger to get some of the stars moving the other direction or there was a second merger that added a different population of stars to that stream yeah so at some point there was an interaction that disturbed the southern tail uh, the reason that the we know these stars are still part of the stream is because they're still co-moving with the rest of the stars but they're also they also have this horizontal motion okay. in addition to huh. kind of the streaming motion and so they're okay. not like completely separate. It's not like they are at completely different distances and unassociated with the sure. stream. But that tells us that there was some sort of interaction after the stream was initially created because these stars at first were part of the stream, but now they also have this added motion to their initial velocities. Cool. So what does the shore-to-shore -shore motion tell us about the origin of the orphan stream? Well... <laughs> I think what, mostly what that tells you is actually what happened after the stream was produced. Uh, but that was sort of a, so this is actually a totally separate segment of the paper was oh. what is the progenitor in addition to, you know, these are some interesting aspects that we noted about uh, maybe what happens later on after the stream was created. It's a footnote in the story of the orphan stream. I know. Hmm. There's just like a lot of different elements that are sort of being pieced together. And what the authors ended up doing was they looked at the RR Lyrae stars that were present in the stream. And RR Lyrae stars can actually be classified into two primary categories based on their periods of brightening and dimming. And globular clusters generally contain just one type of RR Lyrae stars or another, but they usually don't have both. So the authors found both in the stream. And they said, okay, that means that the progenitor is probably a dwarf galaxy. So we had some dwarf galaxy that got sort of tidally disrupted to produce the stream. There was something else that interacted with the southern tail later on. And they actually found that there is an ultra-faint dwarf galaxy called Gru 2 that is nearby and co-moving <laughs> with the stream. Who's naming these things? I know. <laughs> it's G-R-U. I think that's Gru. Gru 2. <laughs> so this is the candidate parent for uh, the stream follow-up observations again studying the abundances and the velocities of stars in dwarf galaxies like grew to are needed to actually confirm this discovery but it's sort of an exciting picture that's starting to come together where now we actually understand where did this stream come from what were the physics that were involved in creating it and what happened after as well. So we're getting this nice evolution of the stream. So the origin of the stream, that dwarf galaxy is still hanging around. Yes. Or it looks like it is. Is that unusual? 
I don't think that that's something that's actually very well known. So it probably depends okay. on how long ago the hmm. dwarf galaxy or globular cluster was stripped. But it's not, as far as I know, it's not confirmed whether you end up with some sort of like shell of the initial globular cluster or dwarf galaxy or if actually everything gets stripped off. Okay. A shell of its former self. Yes. <laughs> it has become one with nature. It's become an ocean. Streaming into the rest of the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> because they found the two different types of our Arlari within the stream, that's like a smoking gun that it came from a dwarf galaxy? Or is there another way that you could tell if the stream came from a globular cluster versus a dwarf galaxy? I think there's probably more information related to the velocity dispersion of the stars initially versus what it would look like after the stream is produced. Also, globular clusters tend to be very metal poor, and I'm not sure how metal rich dwarf galaxies generally are, but I don't think they always have to be metal poor. So I think piecing together a couple different parts of the picture can help to figure out exactly what happened. But I mean, it's hard to know exactly for sure, because you can't rewind time, but you can take all of these pieces of information and figure out what's the most likely answer to everything, to everything, all of it. To everything, yeah. <laughs> this stellar stream contains the answers to everything. Yep. <laughs> That's a really cool bite. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to learn about stellar streams, because I also just hadn't studied them much, or I was aware that they existed, but didn't really think about them a lot before this. And now you're basically an expert. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Sophia. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, let's take a listen to Sophia's one-sentence summary. I am trying to understand whether stellar streams hold information about the direct impact of dark matter. And Milena, what do you have for us as a one-sentence summary? Astrometric data from Gaia can produce the detailed information needed to map out stellar streams and help us define their potential progenitors, as was the case for the orphan stream described in today's astrobite. Shout out to Gru2. Yeah, Gru2. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make t-shirts. One of the things I wanted to discuss on the topic of stellar streams is the Gaia survey, because it is so central to this work, right? As Sophia said, and as you added to, the information known about stellar streams has multiplied because Gaia is performing astrometry like no other survey has ever done and it's actually Gaia is so weird in the best possible way <laughs> because space-based astrometry is generally not something that we do right we do it from the ground where it is cheaper and you have more available time to survey the sky whereas in space it's so hard to get there you want to zero in on the objects of interest and tend to avoid surveys does this mean that Gaia might be the best data we have for a really long time about stellar streams because they may not launch another mission like this. What do you think? Yeah, as far as I know, there isn't a next Gaia that is planned. So this has sort of been the, the big revolution and we know where all the stars are. Amazing. Uh, and then I guess <laughs> we would probably need to have a really compelling science case to actually need to know where the stars are even more precisely. So I think where science is at right now, Gaia is making huge leaps and bounds, but I'm sure with Gaia, we'll actually discover, oh, if we had a little bit more precision, maybe we could figure out this thing and then this thing. 
And so maybe there will be an impetus to propose to have an updated Gaia eventually. But I think Hipparchos was yeah. early 90s. Yeah, so it sounds like maybe maybe two decades from now we'll have another big revolution of the next saga of this series. Yeah. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I think the next revolution in astrometry past the current Gaia data is going to come from the next release of Gaia data. I mean, (laughs) Gaia is continually coming out with updated catalogs, and each one seems, like you said, Melina, leaps and bounds ahead of what we've ever been able to do before. And I also think it's, like, astrometry is not a palpable science issue that inspires generations in the same way as some other science categories. And so I think it's incredible that it even got funding and so much support. And right now, like we're seeing how important it is to have accurate astrometry and how much science that data is able to enable. So exactly like you said, Malina, I think the really impressive thing is going to be building up all of these science cases over time. And then maybe we'll have a snowball effort for like, wow, now it's just normalized that like astrometry is commonplace like a really fundamental thing that everybody needs for lots of different science cases and so then maybe it'll get more support yeah i think that's a really great comprehensive answer i think you're both probably right we will probably have a gaia follow-up it will probably be decades from now but in the interim there'll be so much great gaia data to pour over we can build up the strongest science case possible so well now i feel much more optimistic There's a data release plan for later this semester that people are really excited about. Excellent. So another question. Do you think it's more valuable to galaxy studies and cosmology to study stellar streams around the Milky Way in detail or discover new ones around other galaxies? Well, I mean, of course, you're limited in how many stellar streams you can find to like the very local universe where you're actually able to resolve these populations Mm -hmm. and stars. So as high resolution as you can get, I feel like would tell you the most about your particular system. And in this case, that's like the ones closest to us around the Milky Way. But maybe some other nearby galaxies would tell you something in addition to that. Mm -hmm. I think studying the Milky Way stellar streams and details will give us a better sense of the physics of what's happening. And so we'll actually be able to model it in great detail and really create a concrete fundamental understanding before we then transfer it to other galaxies. But I think what other galaxies would provide is more of a sense of the diversity of the mechanisms that can be at play in different environments. So it's kind of like the solar system. Like we had all these models for solar system formation and then we looked at exoplanets and we were like, oh, this is kind of relevant, but not 100%. But if we didn't have the bedrock of the solar system, we would be clueless. So, (laughs) you know, I think both of them are really very complementary to each other. We might end this discussion question where we end all of our discussion questions, which is like population statistics is a valuable thing to do, too. (laughs) So like getting more objects is a really interesting thing for the full breadth of like how mergers can happen. Yeah, of course. And I think, Milena, to your point, right, there are clearly classes of exoplanets that have nothing to do with the solar system. But there are also things that fundamentally we understand because we have the solar system, like gas giants, right? We, we have a pretty firm understanding of the theory because we have a Jupiter and a Saturn that give us a, a good range, actually. And, and ice giants are a little different. But the fact that Jupiter is about the biggest you can make a planet is something we probably wouldn't have discovered so easily without having a Jupiter in our solar system. And so I wonder if this is true as well. 
But perhaps the Milky Way has dark matter halo that is weird compared to the others, so fundamentally so that actually the physics would be so different. We've discovered galaxies where we believe there's almost no dark matter. I don't think it's understood how this is possible, but just throwing it out there. Yeah. I mean, what do stellar streams look like in elliptical galaxies versus... You yeah. know, spiral galaxies versus flocculent galaxies, etc. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that we can do anything with stellar streams is a miracle to me. Because there, in my head, there are so many different ways that galaxies can merge. Like, it's an incredibly messy process. Stars mm. go everywhere. Granted, <laughs> gravity is, like, pretty well described to first order at this point. So, like, maybe you can break down, like, the trajectories of these objects. But... I mean, it's like looking at a plate and a couple of crumbs on that plate and backing out, like, the meal that the person just had and how they ate it. Like, it just seems like That's deriving really a lot of information from very little at the end stages. It's fascinating. That's... I love that analogy. <laughs> That's astrophoria. <laughs> <laughs> and so with that, we will conclude episode 52, Spectacular Stellar Streams. That's what we settled on, right? Spectacular? I don't remember. Sufficient? <laughs> it wasn't sufficient. I think it's spectacular. That sounds right. Yeah. Schnazzy. Stupendous. Schnazzy. Use a different <laughs> one for the ending than for the intro. <laughs> and with that, we conclude episode 52, Hot Jupiters. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> no. Everything is exoplanet. Yes. <laughs> Can't escape it. Listeners, you may not be a star, but you too can stream this podcast and all of our others at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, and Audible. Yeah, I didn't I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. we haven't called an episode dancing with the stars yet <laughs>